Genesis is obvious, right? The name actually means beginning. It's the beginning of all things. It's the beginning of plants and trees and animals and man and woman and marriage. It's the beginning of sin. And it's also the beginning of God's promise, right? Right when it looks like the story should end because of Adam and Eve's disobedience, God steps in with the first promise of the hope of a Messiah, of a Savior to come. And then the flood happens, and then there's a new beginning, actually a, a recreation in Genesis 9, right? And then in Ezra, we read another beginning. This book is an account of a new era for the people of Israel. After years in exile, Ezra is a book about the long-awaited return to the promised land, about the rebuilding of the temple and the city, and about experiencing the favor of God again. Likewise, Matthew narrates a beginning for the people of God. If the history of redemption is a four-act play, right? So you have creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. Matthew recounts the beginning of Act 3, redemption. After 400 years of silence, the long-awaited Messiah is on the scene. He articulates the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry through the birth of a child. It's a very earthy beginning for the Son of God. And then Acts picks up where Matthew leaves off. We're still in Act 3, right, in redemption, but edging ever closer to Act 4, consummation. The book of Acts describes the beginning of the church, the beginning of the apostolic era, the, and Pentecost. It's the beginning of the age between Jesus' ascension and his second coming. It's in the age that we actually live and we move and we have our being as we await Jesus' return. Beginnings. Clean slates. New resolve. These books are actually a pretty appropriate place to start the new year. I like new beginnings. I like second chances. I can easily get on the renewal bandwagon, and I will happily join the Restoration and Redemption Club. Sign me up. But then I notice another theme in these inauguration books, and this is one maybe we're not quite as excited about. While renewal happens and restoration takes place and repair transpires, those things are in company with another R word, repentance. After the flood in Genesis 8, when Noah emerges as a sort of creation 2.0, the first thing he does is build an altar to the Lord and offer sacrifices on it. The sacrifice was likely to express gratitude, but it was also a sacrifice of atonement. So you have recreation with repentance. When Ezra discovers the sins of the people of God, even as they settle into the land, after years of exile, he tears his cloak and prays a desperate prayer for repentance. Restoration with repentance. In Matthew, immediately following the Christmas story, John the Baptist appears on the scene with one message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Redemption and repentance. In the second chapter of Acts, directly after Pentecost, Peter preaches, and when his hearers were cut to the heart, they asked Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what do we have to do to be saved? And Peter says to them, repent and be baptized. Renewal with repentance. It seems that often we are quick to talk about renewal and about restoration and redemption. We know that that we are new men and new women. If we are in Christ, we are new creations. The old has gone and the new has come. And this is actually a theme that we should think about and sing about. But we usually desire renewal without the hard work of repentance. We prefer to skip to the happy ending of newness 
and avoid the death of the old that repentance requires. So perhaps the true secret to renewal lies in a posture of repentance. True renewal is impossible without repentance, which then begs the question, what is repentance? It's one of those Sunday school words we often hear, right? And we throw around when we want to talk spiritual jargon. But maybe we don't really understand it, or if we do, it's definitely lost its punch. It's been pushed to the side, as is often the case with familiar things. Repentance is an important theme laced all the way out throughout the biblical narrative through Scripture. But today, for the next few minutes, I'm just going to spend some time in Ezra chapters 9 and 10 in an effort to understand what repentance is. So if you have your Bibles, feel free to open there with me. But real quick, here's the story up to this point. Simple. God makes a promise. His people fail. God rescues them. The people complain. God gives them a land. The people sin. God sends judges, but the people want kings. So God gives them kings. The kings fail. So God sends prophets. The people don't want to listen. So God makes them listen. He scatters the people of Israel into exile for 70 years. But even then, God promises that they will one day return. Which brings us to Ezra. That was a very, very fast recap of the Old Testament. So which brings us to Ezra where God fulfills this promise. He brings his scattered people back to the land and the decree, and the decree, sorry, through the decree of a non-believing pagan king. It's not just one small group of people either. It's actually two waves of exiles that come back in the book of Ezra over a span of about 50 years. And King Cyrus even gives them money and resources to build the temple that was destroyed. So they build the temple, move back into the land, and start to settle. And then we read in chapter 9, verse 1. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men have been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. And then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. So the people of Israel experienced restoration and return. They tasted God's goodness and mercy in keeping his promise to them. Yet already, already maybe only 50 years after returning to the land, there is trouble. They intermarry. And Ezra is driven to his knees in repentance. We see here that repentance is much more than a one-time action. Repentance is a posture demonstrated through action. Repentance really means turning away from something and towards something, right? It's a turning away from sin and a turning towards God. It is emotional and physical as much as it is spiritual. And it flows from an outworking of a few things. A right understanding of God and a right understanding of ourselves. First, as we see in Ezra, repentance is an outworking of a right understanding of God. We see this here in Ezra 9, verse 6. Ezra is appalled at sin, but he doesn't just read a self-help book 
or talk to his friends or ask for prayer as he struggles with sin. No, his repentance drives him immediately to God. David knew this too. We know this psalm, Psalm 51. In Psalm 51.4, David says, Against you, you only, have I sinned, and dead one is evil in your sight. And like David, Ezra acknowledges God for who he is. Look in 9 verse 8. He refers to God by the covenant name he gave to Moses. In our English Bibles, it's capital L-O-R-D, right? And that's the covenant name for God, Yahweh. This name is incredibly significant in two ways. First, God's covenant name just demonstrates his power. Think of what happened after God revealed his name, I am, to Moses, right? We have the ten plagues, the Passover, the rescue through the Red Sea, the pillar of fire, the giving of the law in a thunderstorm on Mount Sinai. God showed up in really terrifying ways. He revealed himself as more powerful than the strongest forces of nature and capable of bringing the most notorious nation on earth to its knees in one night. Yahweh was not a God to be trifled with. He was a creator, sustainer, and judge. This past weekend, we watched The Lion King with our kids, um, like the original one with the music and Simone and Pumbaa. And um, do you remember, I don't know if you remember the scene when you have the hyenas and they're talking to Scar about how scary Mufasa is. And one hyena, I think it's Whoopi Goldberg actually, says, um, now that's power. Now tell me about it, says the other. I just hear that name and I shudder. Right, and then they go, Mufasa, Mufasa, Mufasa. And, and all the hyenas shudder and fall to the ground. This is a silly example, but it gets to the heart of what Ezra is actually talking about when he's talking about Yahweh. He knew that if Yahweh wanted to, he could send his people immediately back into exile or kill them, and that he would be just to do so. Ezra 9.4 tells us that he trembled at the words of the God of, ex- of Israel, He says in 9 verse 14, Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so there should be no remnant or any to escape? His repentance was driven by a well-placed and right fear of God. And according to Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So repentance is the first step towards wisdom. C.S. Lewis understood this too when he described Aslan as good but not safe. We on the other hand, too often think of God as safe and don't hesitate to question his goodness. Which brings us to this, the second aspect of God's covenant name, loving kindness. In 9.13, Ezra admits that God has punished us less than our iniquities deserved and has given us such remnant as this. He remembers God's mercy and grace. In 9.9, he says, For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia. Yahweh is not safe, but he is faithful. Yahweh is the one true creator God, but he is also merciful. And it is actually through his laws and his commands that we experience his mercy. Look in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 9. Here Ezra is reciting the command that God gave to his people, the very command that he is repenting of. He, tell, he reminds his people that the land, God said, the land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity. Why? That you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. 
God's laws are given to us because he loves us and he knows what's best for us. They are given to us as a demonstration of his kindness and mercy toward us. They are to prosper us and to protect us. Moving on now to the second part of Ezra's prayer. We just looked at how repentance is an outworking of a proper understanding of who God is, right? He is both powerful and merciful. He is creator of all, and he gives us boundaries in order for us to flourish. Secondly, then, repentance flows from a right understanding of who we are. Calvin put it this way, our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. Ezra got this idea long before John Calvin did. In Ezra 9, it is clear that Ezra grasps the full depravity of Israel. Look in verse 6. He says, Our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. In verse 7, From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. In verse 9, For we are slaves. Ezra does not attempt to justify their actions or make a case for the behavior or minimize their sin. Actually, on initial reading, we might wonder why it was such a big deal if they intermarried. Maybe we could even make a case for evangelistic dating. But Ezra knew why intermarriage was a big deal because he knew God and he knew himself. He knew that God was mercifully protecting his people from prohib- by prohibiting intermarriage because the Israelites had a proclivity to follow after the idols of other nations. And Ezra knew that eventually those idols would destroy them. It is the same for us. See, God knows that if we give sin an inch, it will take a mile, and eventually it will destroy us. The problem is we think we can handle it. We tinker with sin. We minimize it. We justify it. We watch shows we have no business watching because we really truly believe that it won't impact our hearts. We feast our eyes on images, believing that if it's, it's not that big of a deal because it's done in the privacy of our own rooms. We let unwholesome talk out of our mouths because if everyone laughs, it can't be that bad. We gossip because after all, maybe it's just our opinion. We lie, but it's just a little white lie, so it's okay. And then maybe later we feel a little guilty, so we pray about it, and then if we're really serious, we tell our best friend. We apologize, but even our apologies have an I'm sorry but clause. I'm sorry for crossing the line physically with my boyfriend, but. I'm sorry for losing my temper, but. I'm sorry for being selfish, but. Right, I do that with my kids. I'm sorry for losing my patience. But if you guys had just listened to me the first time, right? This is nothing other than tinkering with and minimizing sin. And we only do that because we think we're safer than we really are. We buy into the lie that says that we are the master of our own fates, the captain of our own ships, and that we too can be like God. And this is nothing other than the lie from the garden. This is why, if we're honest, repentance is so difficult. Earlier I said that repentance is a turning away and a turning towards, right? A turning away from sin and a turning towards God. But perhaps that language is too benign. 
I think repentance is better understood as cutting off an arm or plucking out an eye. That's actually the language of Jesus in Matthew 18, 8. He says, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Jesus teaches that there is nothing outside of ourselves that makes us sin. Right? We have no external excuses on which to fall. Repentance acknowledges this truth, acknowledges God's holiness, and then takes whatever drastic measure is required to run as fast and as far away from sin and towards God. We see this actually in Ezra 10. Look in Ezra chapter 10. While Ezra is confessing, it says that a whole assembly of God's people join Ezra and weep because of their disobedience. And then they take a drastic step, one that makes us a little bit uncomfortable. They face the consequences of their sin, which means that Ezra 10 finishes with with a list of all the men who intermarried and set aside their wives. It says, even if they had kids. And then they made sacrifices to God. They demonstrated repentance through action. What about us? Does our repentance stop with our verbal confession? Or are we willing to face the consequences of our sin? Are we willing to take drastic steps to turn away from sin and towards God? Accountability groups are great. They're helpful. But maybe repentance actually means getting rid of your smartphone. Telling your friend how you messed up is fine, but perhaps repentance means you need to tell someone scary, like your pastor or your parents or your RD. Confessing your greed during silent confession at church is worthwhile, but what if repentance meant setting up an automatic payment to tithe or, even more radically, refusing to go to the mall or shop Amazon? And finally, here's where the gospel comes in. What do we do, what do we get when we repent? For the people in Ezra's day, they got the land, the promises of God. And for us, what do we do, what do we get when we repent? We get the one thing all of those promises were pointing to. We get Jesus himself. We experience his grace and we experience his love. Jesus died knowing the depth of our sin and its power over us. Jesus' death is where justice and mercy kissed where God's wrath was satisfied and his mercy demonstrated. Jesus died to make it possible for us to once again desire to run from sin and towards God, as weak as that desire may be sometimes. When we understand our sin, really understand it, we experience the grace that comes with repentance. And when we die to ourselves, when we dethrone our desires and submit instead to King Jesus— we experience true freedom. We actually live. I know it's an iconic and it's older movie, but if you haven't seen it, you should see The Matrix, right? Because in The Matrix, Neo, right, which incidentally comes from the Greek word for new, um, is faced with a decision, right? He can either take the blue pill and continue living the life he's been living all along or take the red pill. He takes, which one? Red pill, some of you have seen it, okay. Watch it. He takes takes the red pill, and then he suddenly realizes that the life 
he was living wasn't real. It was all a simulation. It was fake. Okay? In a sense, repentance is like taking the red pill. It wakes us up to see who God is, who we are, and how badly we need a Savior. So this semester, this year, do you want renewal? Do you want to get it right this time? Do you want to start fresh? Then what you really want is Jesus. If you want renewal, practice repentance. And I use that word practice intentionally. It is not natural, natural for us to admit that we need a Savior. It's not even natural for us to admit that we're wrong. And it still hurts when we cut off a limb for the sake of pursuing holiness. But repentance is worth it. Any pain that brings us closer to righteousness leads to life because repentance is where we meet Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, you have chosen us and called us to be your children. You have given us new hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit, hearts that are no longer slaves to sin, but actually free to choose obedience. Forgive us for our hard-hearted and ignorant trifling with sin. Lord, your kindness is what leads us to repentance. So would you give us soft hearts this semester and this year? Would you allow us to radically repent quickly and often? And then would you comfort us and meet us in your mercy and grace? We ask all these things because of the work of Jesus. And in his name we pray. Amen.